So there I am. I'm about to watch this movie for the third time. And I'm doing it because it's a great movie. For those of you who don't agree with me, it's a great movie because without any... Ah, that's a spoiler. I can't. Let's see. It's the best DC movie that's been made. It was phenomenal. If you couldn't see what it looked like for Jesus to, be, like, to, to come back as king and bring two worlds together that were never meant to separate, if you can't... We, we won't go there. We won't go there. But anyways, while I'm there, I'm reminiscing about why I like movies so much, especially the good ones, of course. And it's mainly because a movie is a story that someone paid millions of dollars to put on a screen for me instead of having me read it out of a book. Does that make sense? Some people, like, and I love story time, but I really like it when the stories are told to me, especially when it comes with a visual. So some people like reading it. They like reading the story. I like being told the story, and I think that's okay. But when a movie is high quality, you can pretty much say it ha mostly has it all together. There are very few missing parts. There's usually nothing glaringly wrong. Um, and you can't really find something to critique unless you really, really try hard. And, I mean, we can critique anything in the world if we have critical hearts. But, um, so it got me thinking, what do you do with a movie that just has it all together, right? Like, if you're not going to critique it, what do you do with it? Usually, I think it's very, it, I think you just enjoy it. You just take it in. You enjoy it, you try to get, you start to ask questions, and you try to get to the core of what's being said. Does that make sense? If there's nothing to critique, you ask questions, and you try to get down to the core. And so all of this got me thinking of something else. We're talking about Jesus as the great physician this semester, and how he dealt with people. And a, physician, a physician's purpose is obviously to help people. But what does a physician do with someone who mostly has it all together. And there, there, there just isn't anything glaringly wrong, right? Like, I mean, we, you, guys are, you guys probably think of your small group leaders. Like, there's just nothing glaringly wrong, right? You guys think of someone like Mike, like, just has it all together. And not in a, in a what's it called, a, a flattering kind of way. You know what I'm saying? Um... In many different respects, we might think we have it all together. And I, I'm not saying that's a far stretch to say that. There's a difference between, like last week, believing that we are more than we are. You know, believing I'm this when really I'm not. Um, and us really having our lives together. Like having a grasp on what's right, what's, what's important, and what's true. I don't think that's unreasonable to say. So, what can Jesus do for someone like this? Right? What, what do we do? What can we do for a friend who has it all together? What benefit do we have for them? I was literally read in Zechariah this morning, and he said, uh, if I could misquote it a little bit, it was something along the lines of, I have saved you so that you could, and now, I have saved you, and now you can be a blessing to others. So how do you do that for someone who pretty much has it all together is the question. Um <clears throat> And there's a man that kind of fits this situation pretty well that Jesus comes across. His name is Andrew. So we'll take a look in the Bible um, at someone, which is Andrew, who pretty much has it all together. The more I read it, the more I looked at it, the more you begin to think, man, like, 
there's nothing really glaringly wrong with Andrew. Like, what is Jesus going to do for him? You know, like, what can he do for a man like that? So, why does this matter for all of us? Because either currently right now, like I said, it's not a prideful thing to say it, we might have our stuff together, right? We might not, we, we just have it together. I, won't, I, I don't want to get farther than I need to get. Or we have friends, like I said, who just have it together. But how are we supposed to be a blessing to them? What, in what ways can we add to what's already an altogether life? Does that make sense? So, is it possible to have times in our friendships where something doesn't need fixed? Some of us are used to having nothing but friendships where someone needs to be fixed in some way. So, is there a time where possibly there's just... You, you, there's, just, there's just not anything glaringly wrong. You see what I'm saying? So I'll invite Lydia up to read tonight's scripture. We're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, so that we can take a look at how Jesus dealt with the kind of man or type of person we're talking about. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked as Jesus walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Perfect. Thank you, Lydia. All right. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, may minds be open. May we come like children to you again. Whether we've known you long or whether we don't know you at all, may we come like children. Help us be attentive to hear what you're saying. We really want to know you more. So show us, Lord, how to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question that we have for the great physician is, what can be done for someone who mostly has it all together? I know that some people might come to mind when you think of something like that, and so this is a good question. What can a physician do whose job is to help for someone who's just doing pretty good? Well, first we have to figure out what it looks like to be doing pretty good. And because the more I looked at Andrew, the more it looked like someone who just didn't have anything glaringly wrong, we're going to go... We're going to kind of break it down, these next, few, these next few verses, to see what Andrew's life looked like, to see what kind of priorities Andrew had, to see if we line up with that first. Does that make sense? So let's do that first. Verse 35, it says, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples. So, we know one of these two disciples was Andrew. So there they are, Andrew and some other guy with their small group leader, John the Baptist. Andrew 
is literally in John's small group. And Jesus had said that there had been none as great as John in all of history to that point. So John's small group was kind of the, the one that was popping. That was the one you wanted to be a part of. So what does this tell you about Andrew? Andrew surrounds himself with godly friends. What about us? Do we have good friends? Well, you're here, so I would imagine so. But what about our other life? Do we have the other friends, the ones that aren't in Chi Alpha? If so, that's okay. Do we bring them to Jesus? Do we bring them to small group? Do we bring them to Chi Alpha? Or are we trying to live two lives and those friends in our separate life, the friends that are not the best influences, the friends that don't love Jesus? I promise that having two lives like that can work for a while, but eventually when you start wanting to be with Jesus and you have friends that do, they always go polar opposite directions. One wants to go this way, your old friends, and your new friends in small group want to go this way. And you can hold on, but you can only stretch so far before you have to choose one. So you will be able to live the double life for a while, but you've got to choose. So Andrew had it together with his friendships. That's one thing we know. And he's a fisherman. So in Jesus' time, fishermen spent long days and long nights out on the Sea of Galilee, and then afterwards, after long hours, the longest part of their job was cleaning and mending and fixing their nets, right? But Andrew, in our current passage, isn't working. None of us are working right now. Andrew is with his small group leader. So not only does Andrew surround himself with good friends, but with what little time he has, he makes it a priority to be with them. He spends what little free time he has with his small group. Andrew had a demanding job, but he made time for what was important. So does that sound like us? Or do we kind of flake out with hanging, hanging out with our small group leader or our friends or coming to Chi Alpha or small group because we're just too busy? We all have free time, I understand. Some a little and some a lot. Andrew kind of only had a little but we don't all use that free time the same way. So Andrew prioritized the best things into what little extra time he had. Andrew had it all together with priorities. And then verse 36 and 37, it says, John the Baptist looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So I don't know what they were doing. I... Maybe they were just sitting having coffee, and he saw him, and kind of like Tourette's just stood up and said, Behold! Right? Like, it seems pretty abnormal. Anyone who's ever gone book shopping with me, specifically to a, a large book sale, knows that I, I'm very, uh, I get very loud and excited. And so what if I took someone with me, and it's not a secret, so there's a, uh, there's a book that inspired this series that the staff really likes. It's called The Great Physician by G. Campbell Morgan. So let's say I went to the bookstore with a friend who hadn't been to Chi Alpha, has no idea we're doing this series, and I see this book, and which isn't abnormal to me, I say, the great physician! And this guy who doesn't know me, this guy who doesn't know what's going on, he just goes, oh shoot, are you okay? Do you, are you having a stroke? Like, you know, he had no idea, he has no idea why I'm saying what I'm saying, or 
like what I'm talking about. Does that make sense? But with Andrew, he didn't freak out. And what, what's his face? The other guy. They didn't freak out when John just stood up and said this. They knew exactly who he was talking about. They paid attention to everything John the Baptist had ever said to them. Andrew was longing to know Jesus, and so he remembered everything John taught him in small group about Jesus. Andrew had it together with his priorities, or with his desires. So are we genuinely hungry to know Jesus, like Andrew? Do we pay attention in small group because we really do want to know Jesus of Nazareth? Or do we just kind of zone out in small group in Chi Alpha? And lastly, verse 37, at the very end, again, it says, and they followed Jesus. This is the last part of us analyzing Andrew. <clears throat> Andrew had been with John for who knows how long. I couldn't find it. John was essentially his boy. Like, they were pretty tight. And so you, you don't give what little free time you have to someone you don't really love that much. Does that make sense? Andrew knew that John was someone special. But when he saw Jesus, without a moment's hesitation, he left his best friend to go after Jesus. There's nothing wrong with John. There's nothing wrong with having good friends. Being a friend of John and being in his small group was kind of a big deal, but being a friend of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus was a bigger deal. Being with John was good, but being with Jesus was better. Being with John was what Andrew knew and was comfortable with. Being with Jesus to up to that moment was kind of unknown. But he still chose him. Andrew had it together with seeing reality rightly. We've all been in small group long enough, come to Chi Alpha at some point to hear something enough to where I'm pretty sure you, you've gotten the idea where someone says, that's him. That's the one. The one, that, the one he's talking about. The one they're talking about. That's the Jesus that saved me. That's the one that I love. That's the one who takes away the sins of the world. So the question is, have we left our old lives or our old friends to follow Jesus? Or do we just kind of give him a passing wave as he walks by? What about, what's choosing, what about choosing what's comfortable instead of what's best? We all have best friends. John was pretty much Andrew's best friend. But what if God asked you to do something or go somewhere where they wouldn't be? I had a small group leader named Zach, and he was... For a long time, my place of comfort, I feel like he understood me best, and he was really my best friend. And he ended up moving away, and being with Zach was good, but staying here in Las Cruces with Jesus was best because this is what he asked me to do. So are we willing to lay down something good for what's best? These are all the things, this is all of it, this is it. Like Andrew had it right with his friends, he had right priorities, right use of his time, right desires, right purposes, and a right view of reality. So if you think, oh, I was one of those ones that have it all together, he's talking about me, then it should look something kind of like this. Because the more I looked at Andrew, I'm like, man, there's nothing really wrong at the moment. So what can the great physician do for someone like, uh, like that? If you're someone like that with these things in check, what can the great physician do for you? What can we do for our friends that are like that? I love my mom with all of my heart, but I do think I was, some of the simple pleasures in life were withheld from me. 
It absolutely made no sense to me why my mom wouldn't spend $20 on a deluxe pack of Yu-Gi-Oh cards for me when I was eight years old. She didn't understand what it would mean for my future and my current social status if I had the full Exodia set, all three Blue Eyes White Dragons and the Dark Magician all together. She would have no idea what that would mean, how powerful my deck would be. Dude, those were them. And what's stupid is you never really draw all five of those throughout a game, no matter what you do. But it also made no sense to me. There were these wrist things. There's a picture there. There were these wrist things that you battle with in the mall. All the cool kids had them. Dude, dude, that's the kid you wanted to be friends with in elementary school. I wasn't him, okay? My mom would not buy me one of those, and it made no sense. I had to be the nerd who used the little, like, paper one that came with my card deck. And so I'd have to carry it around in my pocket with all the cool kids walking around school with their little dual discs. And so, and then she'd try to explain to me why she wouldn't do it in ways that an eight-year-old just doesn't understand, okay? She'd say things like, okay, look, I have to pay for things like gas, things like bills. I, I thought water was free, okay? That didn't make sense to me. But then she says, okay, look, I'll make you a deal. You pay for the next tank of gas, I'll buy you a, a new deck of cards. And I thought, okay, okay. And my eight-year-old self was like, hmm, let me consider your proposition for a little bit. And so one day we're driving past the gas station and I see it. It says $3.20. And I thought, what a sucker. Of course I'll pay $3.50 for this. She's going to pay $20 for my deck. And so I go to my room, grab my $3.50 and say, boom, now I want my deck. And she, and she says, oh, I'm going to need about 24 more of those. And it didn't, again, these are just things that didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand. But what was happening was all I saw was the action of my mom not letting me get Yu-Gi-Oh cards or not letting me eat ice cream as much as I would have liked. But what I wasn't seeing was the motive behind why she was doing it. I know cards are pretty much a waste of money. I don't know where any of my cards are now. <laughs> the why that people do things is far more important than the what. Motive is why we do the things we do and who we do them for. All of us do things. We all do things. We don't all ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Who am I doing this for? Who am I going to school for right now? Is it just for me? So, once Andrew and that, that one guy had went to go follow Jesus, he turns around Jesus turned around after they followed him for a bit, and he asked him this. He says, what are you seeking? What is it you want? Jesus wasn't asking Andrew, what are you after? That was obvious. J Andrew wanted Jesus. That's what he was after. Remember, Andrew had his priorities right. Jesus asked him, why do you want me? What do you, what do you want from coming after me? What, what do you want from being here in Chi Alpha? What do you want by being, from being a small group leader? What is it you really want, right? Everyone knows that Jesus died a gruesome death on the cross. That is a, that is a, very, a very big what. But why? Because he looked and thought of each one of you, name by name, personality by personality, and whether you have it together or not, he said that you were worth it. He said that you were worth that. We can't be with God without the cross. And Jesus said, you mean that much to me.
If I can't have you without going to the cross, then I'll go to the cross. So that's why the cross is a big deal. But what about us? Why are we here in Chi Alpha? What is it you want? I mean, seriously, why, why do you come? Why do you go to small group? I would definitely recommend writing questions like this down. It does take time, but I would recommend trying to answer them. It will reveal a lot about our hearts. Why do we go to small group? Why do we go to resource? Why do we lead a small group? Why are you doing LTC? Why am I pursuing the career I'm pursuing? Why is life even worth living? What are you even living it for? You got 90 years. What are you using them on? Jesus is always most concerned with your why. Everyone in this room, no matter what stage of life, whatever super level of Christian you are or superpower you have, or whatever you're doing or who you are, this question is for everyone. This question drives you inward while pushing all of the secondary reasons and excuses out. Does that make sense? What is it you want? For those of you who love to read, what is it you want from reading the Bible? What do you want from reading old dead guys? Is it to find solutions to our friends' problems? Is it to come up with a program to get person one from A to Z? Or do we read because we really do want to know Jesus? Because he is worth knowing. So what again does Jesus do for someone like Andrew? Two things, quickly. He says, he asks Andrew, why are you following me? What do you want? And he spends the rest of the evening with him. It says at the end of the, it was the 10th hour. Um, essentially, they would have spent from like 10 a.m. till the end of the night that night with each other. Jesus not only drove home to the motive, but he spent the whole evening with him. Sometimes there really isn't something to fix, but there is someone to enjoy. We all have friends. We're all friends to each other. Sometimes there's not something to fix, but there's still someone right in front of you to enjoy. At this moment, Jesus didn't fix anything. He just spent the whole afternoon. But don't forget, the key thing was that Jesus wanted Andrew's motive. Andrew had everything together outwardly. And this is the key. But Jesus wanted to know if he had it all together inwardly. There's this author we love a lot in Chi Alpha. His name's F.W. Borm. Yes, he's also very expensive, but he's worth it. Feed your soul, not your stomach. He was one of the best that ever lived at finding Jesus in everything. The Bible talks about God's glories in the skies, in nature, and all in the world. Borm was the best at seeing that this was true. One day, he was in a chemist shop waiting to meet with someone. I don't know why you go to a chemist shop. I've never been to one. They told him that it would take a while, and so they gave him a magazine to read, right? He was kind of almost going to just toss it away and look at these colorful bottles, he said. But he saw something that caught his attention, and it said, Warning, prevent malaria, yellow fever, coast fever, and endemical fever. There was a time when rabid dogs were something everyone feared, like a wild dog coming after you and biting you. If you got bit, it could scar you, it would hurt, sometimes it could disable you, you know, temporarily or permanently. But rabid dogs, what he began to, as, as he began to realize, were no longer the greatest problem. Sicknesses 
could, that could spread as fast and hurt everything in its path like a wildfire where the greatest threat, a disease was. And they didn't come from rabid dogs that you could see. They came from mosquitoes that you had no idea when they were around. Something smaller than your fingernail can do greater harm than an animal half your size. A rabid dog could bite you and leave, an out, and like leave some bad outward damage. But the mosquito could bite you and give you an inward sickness that could kill everyone around you. The rabid dogs weren't that bad because you could see them coming, you know. You have a gun, you just shoot the thing, you know. Like you see when they're coming. But mosquitoes, though, you usually don't see them until they're on you unless they're one of those really loud, annoying ones. The smallest, most unnoticeable thing happened to be the most dangerous it's usually not the most obvious sin that's the most dangerous. It's actually the most inconspicuous ones that not everyone can see. Jesus moved past the outward togetherness that Andrew had because the inward togetherness is what really mattered. It's easy to have it all together and get rid of the rabid dogs in our lives, but what about the little mosquitoes? What about the sins that most people view as smaller when someone like Andrew had it all together from the outside, we're pretty much looking, the whole list we looked at, those are like rabid dogs. Those are big things. You can find big things easy. Dogs and rabid dogs like premarital sex, like robbery, murder, bad friends, bad priorities, selfish desire. And yes, these are wicked, but they are not the worst, and they are not the ones Jesus express and explicitly said he hated. He does say he hated things a lot. The most common, the most common sins and the most deadly are the mosquitoes like envy, desiring so strongly after something someone else has. Jealousy, being upset because you're not the center of attention in someone's life. Thoughtlessness, just not using this blessing of a mind that you have. Having a cold heart towards other people's problems. Having pride in the things we know. Thinking, well, I can learn from this person, but not this person. There was a... No. Um, being stingy with our money. Some people budget things like giving and missions into their, into their finances. But what about the money that's budgeted for ourselves? Are we stingy with that? Unless it's budgeted for our unselfish budget? Does that make sense? Being quick to anger, being impatient, hating people, carrying bitterness, being exclusive in our friendships. Maybe it's being a coward when it comes to doing the right thing because of what society would think. Maybe we get offended easily. Jesus says don't take up offense. Offense isn't something that's done to you, it's something you take. So, what about laziness? Can't rely on a lazy person. Or a lack of self-control and discipline. There are more than just the blatant sins that everyone sees. Jesus asked him, why are you coming after me? What do you want? Because he wanted to know Andrew's character, not just Andrew's conduct. Jesus doesn't primarily want your actions. He's not a do this and live God. He wants your heart. He says, trust me and live. Jesus wants all of you one of the greatest revelations I think someone can really have is that he actually wants you. The God who created the cosmos wants you. F.W. Borm quotes a man and says this, 
Are you saying the man who has made your home a living hell by his gloomy attitude and irritated temper is more righteous than the man who has stolen your handkerchief? Why, the misery caused by all the pickpockets in the world to the whole human race is less than that inflicted on your single self by the so-called little sins of your relative's detestable temper. Now please understand me rightly. I'm not excusing outward, obvious sins of action. I'm just trying to point out that the inward sins of character and attitude are actually more heinous and wicked when they're left unchecked and out of control. The outward sin of murder does take a man's life, and that is wicked. But the inward attitudes of backstabbing, backbiting, bitterness, insecurity, these kind of things make life such a living hell for people that it might make a man consider taking his own life just to get away from it. Andrew didn't really have many of these microscopic sins of character as you continue reading about it. There are a few things Jesus definitely writes. But the question is, do we have any of these ones? These ones that aren't as obvious. The altogether person. Do we have it all together inwardly? Justin, you can head up here. Tonight our biggest question isn't if we have it all together outwardly or not. It's why. The key is to get to the heart. Jesus wants your heart. I was thinking about it and last week and this week are very broad topics. So it's very hard to give you a very practical way to overcome each of these big outwardly or big inwardly sins and go through a list that long. Um, so I, I've been thinking for hours, what, what do you do? Like, you don't just leave someone there. You don't leave someone hearing what they just heard and not a way to overcome it. And all I could come across when I was reading was this story of when Jesus met a man named Blind Bartimaeus. It says, they came to Jericho, and, he was, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with the disciples, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was, was there, he cried out with a loud cry. Um, he cried out with a loud cry, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many people rebuked him, telling him, Shh, silent, be, be quiet. Every one of us here is going to have the opportunity at so many times to cry out for Jesus. And you are going to have friends. You may even have family who are going to say, Shh, don't do that. Be silent. Stop. Stop yelling for him. Stop doing what you're doing. You're, you're going really far in this thing. But it says that after they rebuked him, Bartimaeus cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stopped, called him over. They said, be of good cheer, he's calling you. And he comes over and Jesus says, what do you want? Well, first he says, have mercy on me. He says, what do you want? What is it you really want? And so you guys, we all have friends here. You might have family that, that doesn't approve of loving Jesus. They're telling you, shh, don't call out to him. What are you doing? What are you doing with your life? But... Either you're going to be silent or you're just going to call out all the louder. You're going to look like a fool all the more. And so tonight, 
as we have the time while Justin plays, for us to come up here and just be with Jesus, to ask him, what are the big things that need to be fixed? What are these small things that no one else sees, but you know? You guys know it. No one else might see it, but you know. I know. And he's, he's going to ask you, what? Don't come up here saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Give me grace. He wants to know what it is.